One of the skills and abilities I appreciate the most, particularly in a field like science, is the capacity to take rich and complex material and reduce it into simple and clear components and yet still do justice to the original material. Our guest interviewee this month has this capacity. Indeed, for the past nine years at the Gardner Carney Leadership Institute as the Institute's scholar, she has been inspiring teachers, helping them to understand how the brain works and understand in any given moment where a student is coming from psychologically, socially, culturally, and emotionally. And in this process, she's been demystifying the process by which a teacher can help a student to become a leader. Our guest is Dr. Joanne Deke. Good morning, Dr. Deke. Thanks so much for spending some time with us this morning on The Edge. Many of our watchers have had the great privilege of learning from you in person, and then other people have not. So in the lab, you talk a lot about crucible moments, and you let people know that what we're doing actually is, is building physically the architecture in the brain. So it, it, burns, it burns memory. When, when you talk about the importance of those interactions, can you tell us a, an example or two that you've seen either from your teaching life or from your professional development life in, in working with teachers to, to bring that to the fore? Yeah, I, to back up just a little though, one of the things that, that the last 10 years has shown us in, in child development and in brain um, uh, neurology and chemistry is that the brain comes in with some hard wiring. You know, we come in with our basic temperament um, and that's pretty sturdy and stays with us. But so much of the brain doesn't know where it's going to live <laughs> or what it's going to have to do. And so it comes in very plastic and malleable. And, and we used to call the first couple of years the formative years, but we're finding really the formative years last through the two decades. And so we have those two decades to really impact these human beings, to to help shape them over time, you know, I call it brain sculpting or or uh, or human sculpting, if you will. And as I look at it, I've, I've written about this. We know that there are big things that shape us. I call those crucible events. You know, the death of a parent, your parents' divorce, you move away from your best friend. These have profound long-term effects, and they can be both positive and negative. Uh, crucible events aren't good or bad, they're what I call is's. They're an is, and they have a positive side and a negative. And our job as sculptors of human beings is whenever an event happens, to have the, the best possible come out of it and tamp down the negative. Um, and so, so when, when my father died, it was a travesty. On the other hand, I had to step up at the age of 14 and take leadership position in my family. Uh, because nobody else was doing it at that time. And it changed me profoundly. But uh, the part that keeps hitting me with, with the students that we work with and our work at GCLI is what, I, what you referred to and what I refer to as crucible moments. These aren't the big events of life. These are just comments or, or a, a behavior that, that hits you. The example I like to give is from a little girl, but um, I have other ones too. But, you know, when I was on the playground with a preschool teacher and this little girl, Susie, came over to her. And I knew Susie since she was three most of her life. And so now she's four. And she was, how do I say this, 
anything Susie wanted, she could get somebody to do for her. She was very good at learned helplessness. And she came up to the teacher and she said, Joey won't let me get on the slide. And she had these tears about to come down her cheeks, which effectively caused all adult human beings to fix the situation for her. And her teacher understood a crucible moment. And she looked at her and said, why don't you go use your big girl voice and tell Joey it's your turn? First of all, the girl was stunned that this adult wasn't going to fix it for her. <laughs> then she, she had this look on her face. I, I, you know, it was a bit of determination. She went off and she stood in front of Joey and she said, it's my turn. And Joey was so stunned because she had always given in before that he basically backed up and off she went. I swear to you that if I could talk to her now, probably 20 years later, she would look back on that as a time that changed her profoundly and gave her the sense that she had some control and, um, and determination in her life. And as we talk with our GCLI people and with kids and with teachers, they all say the same thing. They have these moments, and these moments have profound effects. Certainly, the crucible events do. There's no doubt about that. And, and when we know somebody is having an event, we want to step in and get the best out of it. But it's every day. It's everything you say. It's everything you do. It's the doors you open or you close. It's, you know. so, so that story has stuck with me for 20 years because it, it's the epitome of what we're talking about. And then as I, as I look at growing human beings and wanting them to have the belief in themselves. It basically boils down to the belief in themselves and also the motivation to do something with that belief. The motivation to do something meaningful. If you strip it all down, and I always talk about if, if we could figure out what I call the three C's of a human being. Confidence, competence, and connectedness and build those up early, then we've created a superb leader. And the three C's, you know, as I look at a, a child or an adolescent, I try to analyze those three C's. And how much of each do you have? A sense of confidence, a sense of competence, and a sense of connectedness and, and belonging or wanting to do something outside of your skin. And whichever one isn't as strong as it needs to be, then my job as a sculptor is to provide those experiences or feedback that build up that, that characteristic. So if I have somebody who doesn't have a sense of confidence, I'm going to have them do the things that are just beyond them so that when they accomplish them, they go, ah, oh, and then they have the sense, I, I guess I, I can't. And that, or if it's competence, you know, I always say if you have somebody who's not good at math, don't send them to a shrink, send them to a tutor. Because the sense <laughs> of competence, um, like confidence, generalizes. Once I've done something that was a little bit hard, or a lot hard, or I didn't think I could do, it, it fills my competence reservoir, my sense of. And then if I could do that, well, maybe I could do this. And so it gives you that courage, that chutzpah, that, that somewhat drive to do it. And then the final one, which we've talked about at GCLI recently, it's one thing to have confidence and competence and to use that in your leadership repertoire. But if you don't have connectedness, the sense that you're part of something beyond yourself, 
that there is meaning in life, that, you know, taking care of others or leading others or contributing to the world or to your organization. If you don't have that sense of connectedness, if everything is all about me, then the kind of leadership that comes from that is not the kind of leadership I want in my world. You know, so so it's those three C's that I try to get everybody as I'm looking at human beings, I'm analyzing their three C's, figuring out what I can do to be a part of through the crucible moments or the crucible events um, to build those. I just try to make life simple. Well, that's a lovely, simple, and deep framework. What, it, what I love about it is it tells the teacher who wants to teach leadership what to look for. It's a diagnostic frame. Yeah. And then it also tells them not just what to look for. So we look at each student and say, according to these three, where do we want to help them grow more? It also talks about the kinds of practice and experiences that you want to make sure that they have. And, and all three of the C's, especially the first two, confidence and competence, are what I call catch-22 characteristics. If I, if I come into the world and there are just these types that I have a lot of confidence, I tend to do the things that keep my confidence reservoir full. If I come into the world and I'm the type that doesn't have a lot of confidence, I don't do the things that would build and fill that reservoir of confidence. So it's catch-22. The more you have, the more you do to keep it going. The less you have, the less you do to keep it going. That's true for confidence. It's true for competence. And it's somewhat true for connectedness. The more I feel connected to you, that I have a responsibility to help lead you or, 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 or teach you, the more I will do that. The less I have of that, the less I will do it. And so the catch-22-ness of this is what falls on our shoulders as adults in the lives of these kids. I have to undo that. I have to, for those people who don't have a natural sense of confidence, I have to help put in their environment, you know, little moguls if they're skiing or, or whatever it takes for them to, after they accomplish something or do something or face something, they go, ah, you know, I call it hug the monster. You know, you have to hug the monster to, to, um, to grow and to move. And if you're always in a state of comfort, you don't grow. And so a big part of what we do is metaphorically and sometimes physically hold the hand or put our arm around the shoulder of somebody who's hugging the monster. And, and that, that's a huge part of the pedagogy of leadership, just, just that. Joanne, can you talk just for a moment about how, so, so let's say that a student has an experience and you see that student having an experience and it's, and it's an experience that's either got a really strong positive valence, so we know it's building one of the three C's, or it's an experience that's having a, a painful effect on them. What advice can you give the teacher to help turn that moment into as much of a teachable moment as possible for that student? First of all, I, I say to parents and kids, I don't want you to avoid pain and frustration and being upset because my mother was right all those years ago. She, well, it was a little extreme, but she said what doesn't kill you makes you strong. But what we mean by that is when something is painful 
and you live through it and you manage to stand up again, you actually stand up stronger. Books. We had a situation where our eighth graders had to stand up in front of uh, 500 of their peers at assembly and talk for 20 minutes, well, I think it was 10 minutes, without notes. While Molly, who got up in front of the group, she panicked and she did what I call redlining. Her, she went into hyper-anxiety. And when that happens, the thinking part of the brain closes down. And she went blank. And here is this sensitive girl in front of people that she cares about, not able to perform. And you could just see this was a crucible event with a huge negative valence. And she, she just, she was almost moving into hysteria. Luckily, a friend in the, in the, in, of the audience mouthed the words of the first line. She was able to say it and kind of get her bearings again. And she was able to finish. She did a really below mediocre job. And at the end, there was a silence and I thought, oh Lord. And then the whole place erupted in a standing ovation because they knew what that cost her. So, when there is pain, if there is some intervention, natural intervention, that, that saves it in some way, that's great. If there isn't, if that hadn't happened, if the kids had laughed at her and said, oh, Molly's uh, whatever, and she had run out crying, which was a scenario I thought was going to happen in my head, then the concept um, is to crack the, the negative association or break it and ameliorate it in some way fairly soon. I like to say before they go to bed because things fester at night in the brain, actually. And so I would have gone. She would have been in the bathroom, I'm sure, crying. And, and uh, I would have gone in. And I would have told her how proud I was of her that she attempted to hug the monster. And even though she didn't finish, she did hug the monster because she stood up there. And then the concept of get back up on the horse. I wouldn't have dragged her back in to the assembly, but later that day I might have taken her down to a younger grade level to casually give her speech or talk about it. So, so those associations, if you deal with them, it, it minimizes the negative impact and maximizes the positive impact. Wonderful. One thing that stands out to me from all the examples you've given this morning is that the teacher or the parent is not saving the child or the student. Now, if you save the child too much, you make a weaker child who will never be a good leader. And if you traumatize a child too much, you make a weaker person who will never be a good leader. And it's what I call the razor's edge that we all face as parents or educators or sculptors of children. The razor's edge is how much do I let them fall? And how much do I break the fall somewhat? You know, that that's what we all face. Um, and and it's hard for parents especially. I think teachers may do a little bit better job of it. But it's hard for parents to watch their children in pain or upset or suffer. And and yet, everything we learn about the, about the research on resilience is that that discomfort, that hugging of the monster, is what ultimately makes you a strong and courageous human being. One last question, because your examples have dealt, I think, with building competence and building confidence 
Can you give some guidelines or an example about how one might build connectedness for the student that doesn't seem to have so much of that going for them? The first thing I, w I always say when anybody asks me a hard question like that is, it depends. And what I mean by that is, if I had a blanket answer, you and I wouldn't be here. <laughs> but if I know the individual, then I'm going to try to tailor a bit of, of what I'm going to help happen in, in this person's environment that would lead them to caring more. For instance, I mean, it, it sounds trite, but my nephew, um, my analysis of him was that he was very full of himself and not particularly connected to the world. And this, he was at the ripe old age of six. And one of the things that, for whatever reason, he just loved animals. That I was at the school and that they had a hamster and that the classmates were allergic to it and now I'm stuck with this hamster and I can't take care of it because I'm in my doctoral program, you know how it goes. And she also, we had been in cahoots with this and she goes, oh no, 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 I can't handle it. I'm just too busy and Marty, my nephew, is sitting there and he goes, I'll do it, I'll do it. The long and the short of it is, this hamster would bite everybody but Marty. The only human being this hamster loved was Marty. And it would crawl in his pocket and all through his shirt, and he would feed it and take care of it. And that was the beginning. It, it, again, you have to structure meaningful, emotionally meaningful connections, things that matter. So, for instance, when schools do the Thanksgiving, somebody's starving, throw in a can of beans in a box to feed them, it doesn't affect that sense of connectedness. But you go and deliver the food to a family and see how they live and that there isn't anything in the refrigerator, that changes you. And so the hard part for us is to help figure out what meaningful experience outside of this person's skin is going to begin the hook. So, and that's it is that process and it is figuring out for this person what could be the beginning hook to kind of drag them along. Because once it starts, it, like the other ingredients, snowballs. It, it generalizes, and then you really get hooked. You know. Great. Any, any last comments that you have, Dr. Deke, for the teachers who are out there doing this very challenging and very rewarding work in trying to help their students become more confident, more confident, more connected, and, and better leaders? If we as educators um, don't take this on, um, most of the waking hours of the human being from age six to at least 18, if not beyond, um, is in a school setting. And the, the social media, and whether it's TV or um, instant messaging or, or social networks, is having such influence Yet we know that in-person work has a dramatic effect on human beings. We are the in-person work on a daily basis for at least several hours a day. If I see what happens in schools and with educators as the formation of our leaders of tomorrow, that's where it's going to happen. And so we have to equip ourselves for how to do this and how to take those teachable moments, those crucible moments and events. Um, and so. I'm committed to something like GCLI because 
it, it shapes all of our world and it shapes the leaders of tomorrow. That's, that's where it's going to happen. Thank you so much for your wisdom and your teaching this morning. Uh, Dr. Fish, it was a joy. Thank you. <laughs>